Where is God when the winds of a hurricane tear the roof off of your home? Or when an earthquake destroys a school? This is not a hypothetical question. This is something that thousands of people in Puerto Rico, Texas, Florida, and Mexico City are asking right now from places of rubble where homes and cities once stood. Hundreds of people have died, some of them children in the case of the school that collapsed in Mexico City. Where is God for people who suffer under evil governments? After hearing about the hurricanes and the earthquake of the past week and weeks, I picked up my paper on Wednesday and read about the summer of terror in Iran. In 1988, some 30,000 people were executed by the Iranian government. Most of them without any real trial to speak of for crimes as small as publishing a newspaper article that was critical of the government. And people my age, who I, I was five at the time, people my age have spent years in jail just for asking what happened during that year. That's history that still matters as the United Nations tries to form policies that contain countries like North Korea as Iran comes to the table and criticizes containment policies. That history matters. 30,000 people. Most of us here have not been touched by tragedies of this massive kind of scale. But all of us have asked this question at some point. Where is God? Where is God when your kids walk away from the faith? When your marriage is in trouble? Where is God when you lose a loved one? It's a question for broken-hearted parents. And it's a question that every child of Abraham in Egypt would have asked. As we look at Exodus chapters 1 and 2 today, I believe that you can see the silent providence of God. What is God doing when your heart is breaking? Well, it's my prayer that this morning the Exodus will show us how to trust God in times like these. And I've entitled this message, The Silent Providence of God, because it's in times of disaster and heartache that it seems like God is not saying anything and that he's absent. But that does not mean that he's not at work. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus if you haven't already, or to grab a Bible from one of the chairs around you. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and so it's very easy to find. And we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and chapter 2 today. And I'm actually going to read both chapters as I go through this message. And so I would encourage you to follow along with me and notice some of the things that stand out in the text. Exodus begins somewhere around 400 years after Genesis ends. And so in Genesis, you see Abraham receive the promises of God. that He will bless his family that his descendants will number like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in the sky. And you see his family grow into a small clan of about 70 people. And as Genesis closes, Abraham's family now lives in Egypt. 
and then there's nothing for some 400 years. And I think it's good to recognize that the silence of God, those moments when your heart cries out and wonder, where is God? That is a very real, very personal part of the curse that came on all of us because of sin. The Bible says that in Genesis, Adam walked with God in the garden. That there was a close, intimate, personal fellowship. That there was no periods of silence from God. If you had a question for God, you could ask Him directly and God would answer you. But that has not been our experience today. And in those times when it seems like God is silent, at least part of the reason is our broken fellowship with Him as a result of sin. God speaking to sinful men is the exception, not the rule. And there's a 400 year silence for the people who were chosen by God. So this morning, as we look at Exodus chapters 1 and 2, one of the most surprising things is that God works His providence even at the beginning of Exodus, he remains silent. He does not speak. And I want to show you three things this morning from the first two chapters of Exodus. First, the suffering of God's people. The suffering of God's people. Second, the Savior God prepared. The Savior God prepared. And finally, the silence of God's providence. Silence of God's providence. Let's look first at the suffering of God's people. And I'm going to read Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. So follow along with me as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came down to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died in all his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, 
Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. As we read these verses, it is important to realize that one part of God's promise to Abraham has come to pass in the opening pages of this book. The people are multiplying. Not only are they multiplying, but even as Pharaoh tries to shrink their population, they continue to multiply, and nothing he tries stops these people from growing. But it's precisely this blessing from God that puts them in Pharaoh's crosshairs. As each edict of Pharaoh fails to halt the Hebrew population growth, Pharaoh becomes more and more evil in his persecution of God's people. But with every action Pharaoh takes, God continues to bless and to protect his people. And you can see a sort of back and forth three times in this chapter. With, therefore, Pharaoh does this, and but, and you see the providence of God work itself out so that the man who has set himself up in opposition to God's people fails in every attempt. You can see his first attempt in verse 11. It says, therefore, because they were afraid of the Hebrews, therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And if you skip down to verse 13, it describes the excruciating labor that they endured. It says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. There was no mercy in this. And yet, in spite of how ruthless the Egyptians were, verse 12 says, but, but, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God is not visible in this verse, and yet His promise continues to be true. He continues to be faithful to His word. And when slavery fails... Pharaoh moves to private infanticide. You can see verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. Verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. His second attempt to curb population involves privately murdering baby boys. This was not a public policy. This was a backroom deal where he attempted to murder innocent baby boys. Verse 15 gives you the then Pharaoh did this. Verse 17 gives you but. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Again, God doesn't speak. There's no visible sign of his miraculous intervention. What you have instead is women who faithfully believe the promise of God. And these women, it says they 
fear God and their fear of God, whom they could not see, motivated them to disobey a Pharaoh that they could see. Twice in this short passage, it says the midwives feared God. And after 400 years of suffering, wondering where is God, these women are bold and strong in their faith and they are willing to risk the wrath of Pharaoh because they fear God and God blesses them. Their perseverance is an example for us. The midwives rebel And Pharaoh's next and final step is the public murder of baby boys. So you see verse 22 gives the next then. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just privately the midwives, but all the people. Every son that is born to Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. If these verses don't seem real, If you have a hard time imagining this kind of cruelty, I'd encourage you to hold a baby boy while you read them. Jack is two months old now, and I held him while I was reading and preparing this message. And the cruelty of a people that are willing to slaughter babies out of fear is something that should give us all pause. This is satanic opposition to God's work. And even in this moment, God still seems silent. There's no prophet of God visible at the end of chapter 1. But although God is silent, chapter 2 shows the divine response to Pharaoh's edict. And a savior is born. His life is in danger from the moment he's born because of this edict. He's utterly helpless. But in the providence of God, Pharaoh cannot touch him. Read with me verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him Three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and cause a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. It's worth noting that Moses foreshadows Christ. When God sends Jesus 
There is a king who issues an edict that all boys under the age of two are to be slaughtered. And God protects Jesus just as God protected Moses. Just as Moses was God's chosen deliverer to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, so Jesus is God's chosen deliverer to bring us out of our bondage to sin. But Moses is only a picture. The role that he plays demonstrates the need for a greater Savior. Because for all of the advantages that Moses had, with the education and prestige and power that came from being part of Pharaoh's household, his first attempts to help his people end in utter failure. Read with, verse, read with me verses 11 to 22 of chapter 2. When Moses has grown up, it says, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, fill their father's, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us, watering the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses initially relies on his own strength and ability to put an end to the suffering of his people. And the book of Hebrews tells us that at this point in his life, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt. His intentions are good here, but his methods are wrong. Although he was raised by Pharaoh, he is faithful to the God of the mother who nursed him. And yet when he attempts to use his strength and influence to help his people, he is rejected by the Hebrews and chased out of the country by the Egyptians. And it's worth noting that we do the same thing. Very often our faith is not so much in God, but in our abilities to save ourselves from whatever it is that we fear. Often, our hope and security is in a firearm, a bank account, or even... A politician. But God's salvation is never accomplished through human wisdom and strength. If it were, we would celebrate ourselves and our own ingenuity. And I mean this in a very personal way as we even think about how to run a church. As we think about how to reach Holly. It's critical 
that we rely on the Lord, that we seek Him, that we put the gospel of Jesus Christ ahead of everything else. And I would encourage you to think for just a second. Our salvation from death and hell was not accomplished by Jesus in strength. He is a strong Savior, and He will show that when He returns. But our salvation was accomplished in His humble sacrifice on the cross. His complete trust in the Heavenly Father. And we are told to be like Him. In the New Testament, Paul says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the wise. So rather than using Moses as a 40-year-old man at the peak of his physical strength, coming into his own as a politician in Pharaoh's court, God has this young man chased out of Egypt. And he waits until he's 80 to appoint him as a deliverer. If you're looking for someone to save your people, do you typically look for octogenarians? But God gets glory when he uses the weak things of the world. You can see how weak Moses feels and his level of hopelessness. He's described not as a Hebrew, but as an Egyptian. And when he names his firstborn son, Gershom, it means that he has accepted the fact that he's a sojourner. And you can think of the patriarchs, and you can think of Jacob. Long have been the years of my sojourn, full of evil. It seems that he's saying, I don't expect to see the salvation of God in my lifetime. I'm a foreigner. I'm cut off from the people of God. In a sense, I think Moses sought, God is done with me. That's how God prepared the Savior who would lead his people out of Israel. He led him to a place of absolute brokenness. And even still, the silence of God is not broken. You can see in verses 23 through 25, the silence of God's providence. Look with me. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Moses is in Midian for 40 years, the book of Acts tells us. First line of verse 23 says, during those many days. 40 years. Think about for a second for that, what that means. For 40 years after chapter 1, the people are still oppressed. We don't know if Pharaoh kept slaughtering babies for 40 years, but we have no indication that he stopped. Not once in these two chapters does God speak. There is no revelation. There is no prophet. There's only a 400-year-old promise that they can cling to. And God silently works His providence as His people groan. There are three words here used to describe the desperation of God's people. And sometimes we think of prayer, and I like to think of prayer especially as learning how to use the Scriptures to talk to God. But sometimes a prayer comes out as a groan. 
groaning, crying for help and crying for rescue. Have you ever been in such grief that you couldn't even form words? That's what a groan is. It's the sound of a heart so broken that it can't even describe its grief. And I believe that this this couple of verses here at the end of chapter 2 is critical for us today. What do we do when our hearts are breaking and all we can do is groan? Do we, like Moses, attempt to take things into our own hands and our own strength and solve the problems and fix the injustices? Many people are convinced that if we just build firmer foundations on higher hills, if we just prepare better and respond quicker, we will be safe from natural disasters. When we think of evil people who have harmful intent, very often we try to protect ourselves with firearms and security teams. And a lot of people believe that their salvation can be accomplished through a good education, through marrying the right person, or finding a better job. We not only hope this for ourselves, we hope this for our kids. We put our faith in education and hard work. For our country, we put our faith in strong leaders who claim that they can get things done. But what we need to do is to cry out to God. And we need to learn to rest in Him. If you are here and you believe that you can fix your problems in your own strength, I have very bad news for you. It will not work any better than it worked for Moses. But if you're here and your heart is groaning and you're crying out for help, I have very good news for you. The reality is God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. I entitled this message The Silent Providence of God because there are long periods of time when it seems like God's plan is on hold. But let me suggest That God may not seem to be speaking in the moment of your pain, but God has spoken. Just as he had spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 400 years before we read this in Exodus. So he has spoken in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can cling to the promises of Christ. One commentator pointed out that part of the purpose in our suffering is it shows us our desperate need for a Savior. And Jesus Himself said, it is hard for a rich man to enter heaven. Why? For people who have really all of their material needs met, this is a frightening verse. Why does Jesus say it is hard for a rich man to enter into heaven? And I believe part of the reason is that rich people have their needs met already. There's no need for them to to rely on God, to call out on God. I'm reminded of Pastor Lutzer, who described his family as a boy. His parents were farmers in Canada who moved here shortly after World War II. And this is back before you have insurance to cover your crops. And so when crops failed, you had no income whatsoever. They had no credit cards. They couldn't go out and pay their bills and rack up debt. They literally fell to their knees and asked God to provide for their family. But today, we have the freedom and ability to put things on credit. To trust that we will be able to work hard enough to pay off our debts eventually. And it hinders our calling out to God in faith. Our prosperity very often makes God seem unnecessary. 
But when your heart is gripped by suffering, when your heart is aching, in those times, you realize your need for God and you will call out to Him. And when you call out to God, rather than relying on yourself, you show where your faith is. In the New Testament, Peter writes to believers saying that their suffering tests the genuineness of their faith. And I'd like to read you a few verses from the book of 1 Peter. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The implication of this passage is that if you abandon your hope in God in the midst of suffering, if you trust in other things, you are demonstrating that your faith is not genuine. So let me ask you, where is your faith today? Is your hope in God? Some people preach that God wants to bless you with health and wealth right now, and He's just waiting on your faith to pour out His blessings. This passage shows that is absolutely not true. That is a lie. God uses suffering in your life. And His will is accomplished on His time, not on ours. Those times when we are tempted to cry and when we are faced with unbelief, we need to groan and cry out to God. And the closing verses of Exodus give us one of the most powerful statements in faith in all of Scripture. In response to the groaning of the people, it says God hears, He remembers, He sees, and He knows. He hears your prayers and your groans. He remembers all of His promises. He is always faithful to His word. And He sees every injustice and He sees every wrong. And He knows exactly what is happening. And in His perfect time, He will send the Savior that we long to see. I find these verses at the end of Exodus chapter 2 so incredible because the Bible accepts the fact that in our weakness, it's normal for us to be tempted with unbelief. It's normal for us to think that God doesn't see and doesn't care and that maybe He didn't really mean the promises that He's given to us in His Word. And this verse speaks directly to that unbelief and gives us a promise to hold on to. God hears, He remembers, He sees, He knows. For Israel, this promise is a blessed hope. For Egypt, 
It's the first warning that God is about to judge them for their wrongs. Because nothing is hidden from God. So let me urge you to call out to Him with your grief and to trust Him completely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are here in physical safety and in comfort. Many of us have distressed hearts. And we're reminded of those in Mexico City where hundreds have died in an earthquake and the thousands of people who have been devastated by hurricanes, people who suffer under unjust governments. And Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on us all. We pray for those who are suffering. You would help us to look to you in hope, to remember your promises. Lord, right now we confess our need for you. And we ask that you would forgive us for our sins. When we remain in unbelief, when we look to other things, we ask that you would help us to rest completely in your grace. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and with worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.